This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraos. Thanks for listening. We'll be taking a break from our regular publishing schedule during the month of August and hope that you'll join us again in September for a new season. Upcoming episodes will feature Mark Lee, co-curator with Sharon Johnston of this year's Chicago Architecture Biennial, Laura Kurgan, director of Columbia GSAP Center for Spatial Research, Anne Lacaton of the French firm Lacaton Vassal, and legendary artist and architect James Wines, founder of the environmental art studio site. Until then, check out any past episodes you may have missed, and please let us know what you think by rating and reviewing GSAP Conversations on iTunes. And now, please enjoy a few excerpts from some of our earlier episodes. In February of this year, I spoke with Juan Herreros, who directs the Advanced Studios at Columbia GSAP. In this excerpt, he describes his interest in recently founded architecture offices that are finding new ways to practice globally, and whose practice itself is designed in a very deliberate way. The subject will be explored in a full-day conference he's organizing for the school in November 2017. I think it's quite engaged with the idea of small offices who are flexible and can dedicate some time and some resources to understand local uh, aspects uh, that perhaps big corporations can't dedicate that time and, and, and that effort to sensibilize themselves to a very, very particular uh, context. No? Especially if the commission is not that big and the, and the, and the project perhaps is problematic or complicated. No? It's not this clean thing of designing an airport. No? And that is important because I think that for all these practices that you are mentioning, perhaps they don't have the horizon of doing air, designing airports. No? Mm-hmm. So there is a new practice, there is a new global practice run by small offices who can have this kind of uh, close and intimate relation with the context where they can train finally the relation with their own context. So is those practices coming back home, they have developed some muscles also to do the most sensible local practice. So I think that today the most sophisticated local practice that we can do in our own cities or countries is because we have gone around the world trying to do that in contexts that are not ours. No? You're bringing that level of questioning actually to the advanced studios. You've done that through the transfer dialogues where you've invited emerging practices from around the world to bring certain knowledge to students that are you know, about to graduate, to redefine practice, you know, no longer just as the idea of an expanded you know, mm-hmm. field, but rather, no, no, it's an architectural practice. But yet there is so much invention today that is both needed and possible to engage building at all scales and you know from the smallest and, and i know you're working on a symposium for the fall that is looking at these questions do you want to give us a sneak, yeah. sneak preview <laughs> yeah basically what i have i have done here in the last years is to bring my own questions to the school and to the school as uh, the instrument to to try to to find a way of uh, answering them. No? Uh, first was the question of the culture of studio uh, as teaching format, uh, especially in my case coming from a public huge school where the studio is not possible in the same way, but this discussion between the both models for me is uh, very important. Second is the practice because finally the students want to know uh, 
how to establish a practice. And I think we have to stop that question and say, no, the question is not how to establish, the question is why establish, for what, and what is the design of the practice you want to establish. No? So the practice is a design itself, it's a project, and, and of course we are architects and we want to do architectural practices. So, so the idea of the emerging practices sometimes is related to how to escape from the conventional practice to invent like other jobs. Uh, I, I understand that architects always do projects. Anything we do, any, anything we are asked to do, we do a project. But those projects shouldn't be so broad in terms of trying to transform in projects everything because we are architects and we want to design and we want to build things. No? And, and I think that the practices that the emerging architects have to establish, have to be focused on that way. And, if, and it's possible. It's not that it's impossible and it's a nightmare. No, it's possible. The question is invent it in the right way. In March, we published a conversation between Jorge Otero Pilos, who directs the school's historic preservation program, and Carlos Bayou Lucini and Adam Lowe of Factum Arte. They discussed the role of new digital technologies in the preservation field and the work they did with students during their digital preservation studio in the fall of 2016. There was a really interesting dimension of the, the first idea of the studio, which was, um, here's this church, this medieval church, parts of which are at the Met, parts of which are in Boston. How do you use technology to bring these together somehow? Um, and I know that you've been working on this in other projects. A lot of the projects you've been involved with, like, um, for example, the, uh, the scanning of the different pieces of the tomb of Seti um, the first, uh, have to do with this attempt to almost bring together the, the dispersal of, uh, of a money. How did that how did that come to you? Well, I mean, it came because, uh, effectively, the 19th century saw the formation of the British Museum and many of the great collections when uh, the discovery of Egypt, for example, I mean, next year is the 200th anniversary of the discovery of the tomb of Seti I. But really, I mean, it's about the time that the Valley of the Kings was being discovered. And whether it's Champollion, whether it's Belzoni, whether it's Rossellini, whether it's any of the great first generation of Egyptologists. They went in, they saw these amazing things. And the knee-jerk reaction was to remove them and take them back to show them to the people from the countries they came from, which is why there's so many great Egyptian things in England, in France, in Italy, uh, and to some extent in the States, but that's slightly later. And uh, for me, the, the question is now we're in an age of mass tourism when people go to the sites that actually Egypt needs visitors on site, on the ground, to support the local economy. But the Valley of the Kings was designed to last forever, but never to be visited. So Howard Carter, many people, noticed very early on that the presence of visitors were destroying these caves, uh, these tombs. And if you go to Tarquinia, if you go to other tomb sites around Europe, this is a well-known fact. I mean, they can't take large visitor numbers. So what started to become apparent was that in making a facsimile, we could not only show the whole biography of the tombs, why they look like they do now, but we could also show that the fragments from Seti's tomb that were removed 
um, and taken to Paris or taken to the, the, the uh, Archaeological Museum in Florence or taken to the British Museum or taken to Boston or, or taken to any of the other uh, big repositories have all had an independent biography since their removal. So particularly the image of Hathor and Seti uh, that's in the Louvre, uh, which was a matching door frame to the one that's in Florence. Those two fragments now look nothing like each other. Um, they look vaguely like each other, but in details they look very different from each other. And they also look very different from the original two. So if you can start to get people to look at the history of an object, to look at its movement, its trajectory, what it's been subject to, how it's been valued, how it's been cared for, how it's been conserved, then you can actually start to show um, different attitudes at different times to what's important about that object. And so it's not just trying to present objects as um, fixed things in museums where they're um, revered for their aesthetic value, that may be a part of them, but it's actually trying to look at them as, as complex subjects that reveals many things about us, as many things about us as it does about uh, the original object itself. So our perspective is very local, limited, uh, and framed within our understanding, and that understanding is constantly changing. In April, on the occasion of their lecture at the school, current student James Brion spoke with VPPR, the London-based office co-founded by GSAP alumni Tatiana Van Prusen. They discuss a number of their projects, reflect on the benefits of a small office, and offer some advice to current students. Since you opened in 2009, your firm has stayed very small. Uh, can you describe the impact that that's had on your projects or on your design process? And do you have any intention of expanding or sort of growing as a firm? Yeah, I mean, I think growth is all relative. Um, for us, we're, we're sort of, we are growing, yeah. uh, slowly but steadily. I mean, 12 we're now 12 people, so we started as three. <laughs> um, and it's, I think we, we wouldn't want to sort of, um, sort of suddenly uh, expand too quickly. Um, we're aware of all the kind of systems and um, systems at play in, a, in an office but we we definitely have um, you know we're sort of our projects are getting larger and that requires larger teams and at the moment we've got an amazing team um, so it's definitely like we want to grow that yeah and I think actually the small scale projects that we've done has really allowed us to develop a language um, and, and actually we all, all now are sort of very attuned to the way we think which as three directors is, is very important and a lot of these ideas can translate to large practices, to larger projects, and uh, it's really just getting, getting larger, you know, being given large projects. So we're just waiting for them to come our way. Really, <laughs> um, it, I think that's the frustration. There's a young practice. We started very young, we're 27, and set up, um, and it is always that feeling that you really can do bigger things, but it's just a sort of building the sort of reputation around the practice, which which is definitely happening at this point. Yeah. But, um, I mean, it's happened so often where we um, we get very close, like shortlisted, come second in a competition to design something great, right. like a library or something, and then we don't win because we haven't already built a library. So, <laughs> so it's a catch-22, we're still figuring out. Mm. And I think the projects are incrementally growing larger, mm. and 
you know, we started off with one unit or two units, now we're doing kind of 10, 12, um, 20 units. And, um, and you, you, as you jump up in the scale, you do have to kind of revisit your design um, principles because um, it doesn't neatly translate. There are many things that pass from the smaller projects up to the larger ones, mm -hmm. and um, I think we're definitely ready for much bigger projects. Well, that's very exciting. Um, so you started your firm in 2009, as I mentioned, a time of global turmoil. Uh, today, in 2017, do you have <laughs> any advice for frightened graduates who might be uh, venturing off into the world? We don't know what the future holds right now. <laughs> We were talking about moving to New Zealand. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it is it is very um, very scary times, and uh, I would say you know exercise your democratic rights and protest and make your voices heard and keep being idealistic um, because you know in the next few years you'll be the people who are making these kinds of decisions, and um, it's really important that you you. Don't lose sight of, of the idealism that you have as a student. In May, I spoke with Kate Orff, who is the founder of SCAPE and directs the school's urban design program. Her professional and academic work addresses the need to think across scales and increase social engagement to build resiliency in light of climate change. One of the terms I think that you coined for us very early on is this question of scales of environment mm -hmm. to kind of uh, constantly, you know, connect the smallest scale to very kind of large scale, system scale, um, and to have um, students and architects, you know, to, to think across scales, which is, you know, uh, one of our expertise, in fact, mm -hmm. uh, to move kind of beyond the object and understand that it's always already perforated. Um, and how to visualize mm -hmm. that. And I, I, I wanted to, you to talk a little bit about the um, the question of scale and then the question of visualization, which I think is quite important here at the school, but I think it's also important in your own work to make invisible things mm. and systems visible, in fact. Um, um. Yeah, within, uh, within the program, just to you know, continue on the, the discussion of, of Jordan, which has been so fascinating, especially relative to scale, uh, we have an incredible um, depth of faculty uh, in that sense. So um, on the one hand, we have uh, Laura Kurgan, uh, who is a director, director of the Center for Spatial Research, who has done very, very large-scale <laughs> mapping uh, of politics and, uh, and um, resource, and myself in more, more sort of resource extraction. So the students, um, we are a team-taught studio, so students have not only sort of um, Laura Kurgan, who's looking much more broadly at almost satellite imagery and understanding territorial scales and political scales, economic um, uh, uh, aspects. Um, myself working more at a kind of a middle scale. Uh, students also have uh, faculty like Ziad Jamaladeen, who's an amazing architect who then um, brings uh, these larger questions, we all work together to bring those larger questions down to the scale of a unit or a building or a fragment of built landscape. So, um, and, and then you, you, you quickly realize that relative to climate change, there is not you know, a site scale or one kind of building operating in isolation that can truly address some of, these, some of the issues that we 
are, are now facing. Um, but when you begin to think of units of transformation or modes of transformation and be able to think about them in the aggregate and couple those, uh, that physical concept with social and political strategies for embedding that, then, then you, you start to really talk about an urban design um, uh, a practice, a mode of practice that is very different from the forms of practice that we were looking at in, say, the 60s, mm-hmm. or you know, when urban, you know, even in, within the space of the <clears throat> Columbia Urban Design Program, you know, we had Alexander Cooper and and you know individuals who were incredibly prominent, uh, but who were essentially almost designing pieces of a city that were uh, like Battery Park City, for example, or um, implementing a master plan, and and we are we are. Um, teaching our students and, and, and very differently <laughs> now uh, because they need to be able to um, operate differently uh, um, in, in light of not only climate change, but also in light of the very different um, political and, and social systems that characterize you know, um, you know, the, 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 the urban context now. It's not just a, a top-down, you know, capital-intensive system. Many of the changes that I think will be happening are coming from really ground-up transformations. And so, you know, that's one thing, in addition to scale, um, that, that we've emphasized in the program is this reciprocity between pairing always a sort of physical uh, intervention in design. I mean, we are designers, we design in studio, but pairing that sort of physical um, design intervention always within a very um, defined um, uh, social context. So another another faculty member who, who's been important in that arena is Gita Mehta, and so she's um, worked to devise the system of social capital credits, right? So change needs to happen. I mentioned the example of Madurai. You have a, a clogged water bodies. You have a, a river that's almost gone dry. There's no one government entity or private entity that is going to sort of come down and just alight on the situation and address those issues. But through this concept of sort of social capital credits, you can mobilize multiple kind of grassroots um, organizations toward a common purpose and begin to make change in, in these contexts. So I think that, that that's something else I think is really a sort of hallmark of the program is always n- n- this, this nesting in between the physical and the, the social reality. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with ARC Daily. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.